0: the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, a tenuous collection of four nations spanning a group of islands on the northwest periphery of Europe. Introducing the world to global trade and the Industrial Revolution, the United Kingdom became the foremost power of the world, occupying a quarter of the Earth's land area and changing the course of human history forever. By 1921, it achieved its greatest territorial extent. It was the largest empire in the world and the envy of Europe. Now, a century later, the script has flipped. The 21st century has not been so kind to the United Kingdom. The British Empire is no more. Feeling as if it was playing second fiddle to European Union member states, the United Kingdom withdrew from the economic bloc in 2016. In England, populist Brexiteers and talk of English votes for English laws have created a renewed sense of Anglo-centrism not seen in decades. Scottish parliamentary elections in May 2021 led to a significant win for its pro-independence, Progressive Nationalist Party, and promises for a second independence referendum. Anger bubbles in Northern Ireland over a Brexit deal that has created a border in the Irish Sea, threatening to ignite a new era of sectarian violence. And even in Wales, there's growing discontent. Nearly four in 10 Welsh favor charting their own course as an independent country.
1: Outside observers saw the 2016 Brexit referendum as the sudden watershed moment, laying bare the internal contradictions and divisions within the United Kingdom. However, there's more to the story than that. After decades of imperial decline, globalization, economic stagnation, Brexit, and now the COVID-19 pandemic, the United Kingdom has rarely felt so disunited. In this episode of Up to Speed, we look beyond the Brexit referendum and through to the history of the four countries that comprise the United Kingdom. It is a story of imperialism, economic turbulence, and unceasing political battles under a peculiar semi-democratic parliamentary system. We ask, why has the UK struggled to find its place in the 21st century? How have decades of decolonization and the fading of its great power status impacted the nation as a whole? How has it shaped the UK's relationship with Europe and the rest of the world? What have recent events revealed about the UK's political system, and perhaps most importantly, will the United Kingdom remain united into the future? By the end of this podcast, you'll be up to speed. Let's get started. Chapter one, Decolonization. Our story begins nearly 6,000 miles away from London on a very different group of islands. It is 1997, and on the island of Hong Kong, British pomp and circumstance is out in full force as the world watches the islands handover. The British flag will be lowered and British administrative responsibility will end. But Britain is not saying goodbye to Hong Kong. Why is this event significant? Well, the handover of Hong Kong was the culmination of a slow decline decades in the making. If 1997 was the sun setting on the British Empire, then 1945 was the sun setting on British international dominance. World War II's physical and emotional devastation of the European continent and the UK placed the United Kingdom on a path of recovery rather than international dominance. From the 1940s onwards, it began the process of decolonization, the withdrawal of Britain's corporations, military, and occupying governments from previously colonized territories. In the place of the United Kingdom came the United States, whose prominence during World War II and the Cold War set it up to dominate international politics. Although the UK was part of NATO and the United Nations, it didn't have the same level of prominence it once possessed.
0: The United Kingdom was built by and for imperialism. The British political system designed an economic model built on extraction. Indian spices, American tobacco, Canadian furs, and African slaves allowed the British economy to thrive off of the import and export of colonial goods from occupied territories. The United Kingdom was not only built off of imperialism, but built to be an imperial power. The Acts of Union in 1707 united the parliaments of Scotland and England and were part of a plan developed in order to temper English supremacy, settle financial pitfalls, and unify the island of Great Britain to project power abroad. This turned out to be a relatively successful arrangement for the next 290 years. The United Kingdom was built by and for a global empire. Now, without territory to occupy and colonies to maintain, what happens now? How does an imperial state define itself in a post-imperial world? Decolonization and the handover of Hong Kong signaled a shift within the United Kingdom. A Britain less focused on lands thousands of miles away directed attention to long-simmering divisions much closer to home.
1: For 30 years, Northern Ireland was embroiled in low-level sectarian conflict between nationalists who wanted a union with the Republic of Ireland, and Unionist factions seeking continued British governance. This 30-year period was known as the Troubles, which resulted in the death of 3,500 people. The peak of this violence occurred in 1972, when 26 civilian protesters were shot by British soldiers in the infamous event known as Bloody Sunday. The early 1990s were plagued by bombings in London, Manchester, and Leeds by the Irish Republican Army a pro-Irish reunification paramilitary group that carried terror attacks out across the U.K. To come to a peaceful conclusion, the Good Friday Agreement was negotiated and approved by voters from Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland via two referendums, marking the end of this political violence. The Good Friday Agreement also signalled the beginning of one of the most consequential changes in the UK's political system devolution. For its entire existence, the UK was unitary, with all four countries subject to the singular authority of the Parliament of London. The Good Friday Agreement acted as the foundation of devolution in Northern Ireland. However, devolution is a process, not an event. It meant that the UK Parliament would delegate power to more local levels of government to mimic an almost federalized system. This setup was approved in Scotland and in Wales. In 1997, voters created the Scottish Parliament and Wales National Assembly. And by 1999, all three nations had held their first parliamentary election. Finally, the outer nations, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales, could exert authority over their own affairs instead of relying on Westminster, which skewed in favor of the more populous and wealthier England. With de-evolution, the structure of the United Kingdom changed forever, and there was no turning back.
0: Chapter Two, Stagnation. It would soon become apparent that the victories in Northern Ireland of 1998 would give way to an uneasy peace. By the fall of 2001, tensions ignited once more in the Ardine area of Belfast, a neighborhood segregated into Ulster Protestants and Irish Catholics. Sitting in the Protestant area was Holy Cross, a Catholic girls' school that became the site of picketers and blast bombs. The BBC streamed video of helpless Irish schoolgirls dodging rocks and bricks as they walked with armed police officers. An escalation of protests, riots, and loyalist attacks on police continued into 2002. The events of Holy Cross mirrored the violence across Northern Ireland, with sectarian lines being drawn sharper as violence gradually escalated between the warring factions. In October 2002, these divisions began to play themselves out in the halls of the Irish Assembly. The police raided the Irish Nationalist Party, Sinn Féin's, offices after accusations that the Irish Republican Army was using the political party as cover for a secret spy ring. As a result, the Ulster Unionist Party refused to form a government with Sinn Féin. Given that the Good Friday Agreement requires a power-sharing agreement between the Nationalist and Unionist factions, the Assembly collapsed without completing a full parliamentary term. Westminster temporarily suspended devolution in Northern Ireland imposing direct rule on the country. Ireland, the EU, and the international community were concerned that the United Kingdom government was beginning to have a difficult time managing its deep internal divisions. They saw this as yet another example of the failure of the Irish Republican Army to live up to the Good Friday Agreement. The Northern Irish Assembly would not be reformulated until 2007.
1: Then there was the European Union. Despite being a member state at the time, the U.K. had a special relationship with the rest of the EU. It did not follow all the protocols of the European Charter. In fact, it had four major opt-outs more than any other member state. It possessed its own border controls in partnership with Ireland. It kept its own currency. It did not adopt the European Charter of Fundamental Rights. And it opted out of most of the policing and criminal justice legislation. So, for decades pre Brexit, the UK's relationship with Europe was far from integrated. Why is this? Well, for starters, the 1974 referendum that brought the UK into the EU's predecessor, the European Economic Community, was immensely divisive. The UK's past hegemony and imperial ambitions put it at odds with other European countries. European integration was not warmly received by a generation that had lived through World War II and was now staring down the barrel of the USSR. The UK negotiated these opt-outs while still a critical economic leader during the Cold War, providing it with leverage over other European nation-states. However, when the Berlin Wall fell and the world became less polar, these arrangements made out of strategic necessity would begin to drive a wedge between the UK and the EU. Relations only got more strained as the EU expanded and grew in stature.
0: Political shifts in the United Kingdom were also met with immense economic changes. The backbone of the United Kingdom's economy for over 100 years, between the 1870s and the 1970s, was heavy industry. Whether it was shipbuilding, steel, coal, engineering, or manufacturing of everything from cars to textiles, these secondary sector industries were a central fixture of working life in Britain. But by the 1980s, amidst the deindustrialization and decolonization of post-war Britain, these industries were heavily reliant on public investment. As a consequence, the economy was right with stagnant economic growth and spiraling debt burdens. When Margaret Thatcher saw this as an undue malaise on the United Kingdom's economy, she initiated a series of measures to fix what she saw as a major problem. Immediately, Thatcher increased interest rates to slow inflation, And drastically cut investment in the UK's nationalized heavy industries in order to strictly control the money supply and reduce public expenditures. Almost overnight, the government's subsidies that had kept many industries alive had disappeared. The regions of the United Kingdom that relied on these industries Scotland, Wales, and the north of England were devastated. The industrial and manufacturing capacity of the United Kingdom effectively vanished because the UK's companies, nationalized steelworks, and mines could no longer get the investment they needed to maintain their competitiveness. Scotland, in particular, saw over 20% of its workforce lose their jobs in nearly two years.
1: However, not everybody was negatively affected. The Thatcher administration's policies put the UK in a new fiscal situation that was favorable to the financial sector, was largely centered in the city of London and the south of England. The wholesale privatization of the nationalized manufacturing sector gave the financial sector a major windfall. The UK's GDP increased as London's economy prospered, and Britain became heavily reliant on finance, real estate, and investments. The effects of this were palpable. Peer economies like the US and Japan have about 25% of their GDP attributed to trade. However, in the UK, this was around 40%. Contrary to the European Union, the UK continued the implementation of the monetarist economic policies that began under Thatcher. With its second landslide victory in 2001, the Labour Party began to assert these economic policies more prominently. Without an empire of subjects to export to, however, the UK's manufacturing apparatus became unnecessary and continued to decline. Large numbers of manufacturing jobs began moving overseas particularly in the automotive industry. When automaker MG Rover liquidated in 2005, over 20,000 jobs were lost in one fell swoop.
0: Despite all of this, the UK government still worked to project an image of power abroad, supporting the efforts of the United States through the UK status as the junior partner in its special relationship with the US. To continue this effort, the Labour Party saw itself spending billions to support American-led initiatives in Afghanistan and Iraq, which forced it to raise taxes and increase borrowing. Now, these events might lead you to believe that the United Kingdom was flailing economically. You would be wrong. During this time, the United Kingdom had one of the highest GDP growth rates of any developed economy and the strongest of any European nation. Tony Blair's New Labor Party embraced the third-way strategy supporting both center-right capitalist programs and center-left social programs like early childhood education, pensions, and the national health system, which is the United Kingdom's government-run healthcare system. Core to its success was the focus on the financial sector. It was London, and by extension England, that would benefit from the shift to a finance-based economy as the other three countries took a quiet backseat to London's rise as a core location for lucrative financial markets and international banking. By backing the United States during the War on Terror, the UK was perceived as a major player on the world stage, punching well above its weight. And, despite the massive price tag, these actions helped maintain the United Kingdom's geopolitical relevance in a post-imperial, post-Soviet international landscape. But the benefits were very uneven. The big beneficiaries of this boom, finance, investments, and real estate, were highly concentrated in England. For the rest of the United Kingdom, those benefits became largely unrealized, and an already unequal relationship became even more unequal. The UK's global interventions against terrorism were still a far cry from Britain's imperial century, and it did little to reverse its continued decline.
1: Meanwhile, in 2007, Northern Ireland's nationalist and unionist factions came to an uneasy agreement to restore the devolved government after five years of direct rule. For many in Northern Ireland, however, the five-year saga of direct rule severely wounded confidence in the core arrangements set forth under the Good Friday Agreement, a semi-autonomous Northern Irish government under the care of Westminster. Many felt betrayed— feeling political autonomy had been snatched from their hands. Despite British assurances that direct rule was temporary and the political status of Northern Ireland would not change, many believed the country would remain in a state of limbo, simply waiting for the next time Westminster would impose its will and take away the voice of Northern Ireland. This left a permanent stain on the long-negotiated settlement that had ended the Troubles just a few years earlier. And in Scotland, having a devolved government gave Scots newfound representation. But given the dominance of Parliament by the Scottish Labour Party, things still felt largely the same. Many Scots were still grappling with 30 years of economic stagnation, one of the lowest expectancies in Western Europe, and an exodus of workers leaving the country. This was further exacerbated by the fact that the Scottish Labour government, as well as the Scottish Conservative opposition, we were taking cues and directions directly from the U.K. government in London. Many in Scotland did not see this as an autonomy that they had voted for. As a result, Scottish voters, who had long supported the efforts of the Labour Party, rejected the status quo in a dramatic fashion. In 2007, Scottish Parliament elections delivered a victory for the left-wing, pro-independent Scottish Nationalist Party and the new First Minister, Alex Salmond.
0: For the first time in United Kingdom history, a party in Great Britain was in government, and it didn't belong to one of the two major Westminster parties. After decades of economic mismanagement and feelings of second-class treatment by the English-dominated UK Parliament, and with no global empire to maintain or an external adversary to oppose, many Scots began to question the value of being British and use their newly devolved legislature to prove exactly that.
1: The U.K.'s economic position was becoming untenable. Westminster's laser focus on the financial sector left the rest of the U.K. especially vulnerable. As London and England grew richer, the other nations of the U.K. fell behind, with London's increased power came to increased hubris, and it became a beacon for risky investment strategies. In 2008, these risks failed.
0: Chapter 3. Division The UK's experience with the 2008 recession was unique, and the mass effects on the United Kingdom were often attributed to the nation's reliance on the very financial sector that was carefully constructed since the 1980s. As was the case in most parts of the world, the 2008 recession exposed many of the rifts forming within UK society. But it was what followed that made things a lot worse. The U.K. was one of the most heavily affected countries during the crisis. The flaws in the economic legacy of the Thatcher era laid bare how half-advised the new government's plans really were. In order to deal with the imbalance, the U.K. government introduced rescue packages in 2008 and 2009 to help keep banks afloat during the global financial crisis, providing bailout funds equivalent to almost 20% of the country's GDP. Overseeing this crisis was Tony Blair's successor, Gordon Brown, who implemented a series of fiscal policies to keep the country afloat, often in lockstep with the European Union. By 2010, the economy marked modest growth, but seemed weak compared to the successful, faster, and larger comeback of other major economies. Westminster's fiscal policies may have saved the nation's economy, but it was also the government's prioritization of financial institutions that brought the UK into a messier situation. Many people in the United Kingdom were not satisfied. The United Kingdom's debt burden increased dramatically. Hundreds of thousands of businesses shut down. Over one million people lost their jobs. The banks were rescued, but the average UK citizen was not. In the minds of many, the wealthy of London and the south of England were bailed out at the expense of workers and families in the other three countries as well as the industrial heartlands of the north of England.
1: i just say this, that we are going through a period of extraordinary turbulence in every part of the world. Every single country is being affected.
0: The conservatives, bolstered by the effects of the recession, won the most seats in the House of Commons, going into coalition government with the ascendant liberal Democrats for the first time in 13 years. Soon, the new prime minister, David Cameron, Sought first to offset the huge deficits created by the previous government by making some stringent economic decisions.
1: Enter austerity. David Cameron's government cut back public services and increased the tax burden on average Britons. While it brought the government's balance sheet in line, the economic results were mixed. After partially stabilizing in 2009, the country struggled with a double dip recession between 2010 and 2012. This was a political disaster. And the recession exposed and heightened economic rifts. The UK government paid wealthy English financiers, but now everyone else was feeling the crunch as many services they relied on were facing cuts, setbacks, and outright removal, fostering a strong negative response from the public sector. Within four years, the UK dropped from 5th place to 12th place in terms of household income, and the divisions would only get worse.
0: However, things were different in Scotland. Seeking to prove to the world that Scotland was capable of going it alone the SP began making dramatic changes to Scotland's economic system. They froze taxes on working and middle class Scots, cancelled all student debt, and guaranteed free higher education to everyone in Scotland. They built 25,000 units of affordable housing and dramatically expanded the National Health Service with record budgets and free personal care to senior citizens. To keep the deficit under control, the SP successfully struck budget deals with the Scottish Conservative opposition and used Scotland's North Sea oil and gas resources to create a fund drawn from the record high oil prices of the early 2010s. While Westminster was tightening its belt and clinging on to neoliberal orthodoxy, the government in Edinburgh was moving in the complete opposite direction. Scottish voters noticed, and the country largely avoided the brutal double-dip recession that plagued the rest of the UK in 2012. It became evident that Scotland and Westminster were moving on increasingly diverging paths, with remarkably different results.
1: The 2011 Scottish parliamentary election saw an even greater shocking victory for the Scottish National Party. Despite the proportional election system that was designed to prevent single parties from capturing a majority of the seats, the SNP scored over half of all the seats in the Scottish Parliament. Immediately, pro-independence messaging became even more stark. Alex Saldman, the first minister of Scotland, proclaimed that there was a mandate for an independence referendum. In Alex Salmond's mind, it was time for Scotland to decide its own future. David Cameron, feeling obligated to honour the voice of the Scottish voters, took a gamble and struck a deal with the Scottish government. For a -a once-in-a-generation referendum on Scottish independence, the UK was entering uncharted territory, and the SNP was riding the wave. The people who live in Scotland are the best people to make decisions about their own future. Of that, there can be no doubt. In May of last year, those people, the people of Scotland, gave this Scottish government an overwhelming mandate because of a record of good government, a clear vision of the future, and the promise of a referendum on independence.
0: From May to September 2014, the two campaigns fought for competing visions for Scotland. The Unionist No and the Nationalist Yes camp. Many concerns around defence, customs, currency, and the ability of Scotland to pay for itself became major sticking points in the debate. In addition, the Unionist No campaign promoted the idea that an independent Scotland would be unable to join the European Union automatically and would need to reapply, creating concerns that Scotland would be obliged to leave the economic bloc. Despite being the underdogs, the pro-independence Yes campaign gained steam, gravely concerning Westminster's political class. In their minds, something needed to be done. So. Two days before the independence referendum, David Cameron and the leaders of the other unionist parties, Labour and Liberal Democrats, joined forces on the front of a Scottish tabloid newspaper. This would be known as the Vow, a promise that the United Kingdom's government would grant Scotland greater devolved powers and that these negotiations would begin immediately after the referendum. Ultimately, David Cameron's gamble paid off. Scottish voters rejected independence 55% to 45%. Alex Salman resigned. And in his place, a new First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon.
1: And it wasn't just in Scotland that the political fortunes began to shift. Amidst the economic turmoil, populism was growing in England. Enter the UK Independence Party, or UKIP. Seeking to capitalize on post-austerity and post-recession discontent, UKIP, led by Nigel Farage, sought to frame the ills of Britain's post-recession reality on the EU and its oppressive regulatory apparatus. This image was further inflamed by the institutions of the EU, who were buckling under multiple pressures. First off, the 2008 crisis set a series of events in motion that put numerous eurozone countries such as Greece, Spain, and Italy under severe economic strain. The eurozone itself was starting to default amidst crushing debt, burdens, as trillions of dollars worth of GDP vanished. And perhaps most importantly, the Arab Spring of 2011 ignited civil wars in Libya and Syria, leading to a multi-year mass exodus of refugees into Europe. All of this came to a head in the mid-2010s, amidst a wave of terror attacks that plagued the country between 2015 and 2016. Amongst many Britons, the EU was as unpopular as ever especially because it was seen as overstepping its boundaries. With an EU attempting to welcome and resettle refugees in its member states, the British began calling for a Brexit referendum. Many in England, as well as Unionists in the other three nations, saw the current state of Britain and its attachment to Europe as an insult to its storied past as a global superpower.
0: The political atmosphere was ripe for conflict and exploitation. Weaponizing many Brighton's immigrant fears and the dramatic economic shifts that left many workers behind, UKIP successfully lobbied the Euroskeptic wing of the Conservative Party to push for a question on the UK's membership in the European Union, a question that they had been asking since that fateful vote on membership in the 1970s. As a result, David Cameron agreed to yet another referendum, another gamble on his premiership. However, This time, it was about the UK's complex external relationship with Europe, not some internal matter. And when another general election put the Conservatives fully in charge, there was no backing out. Those in Scotland and Northern Ireland were angry. Scottish voters, already upset over David Cameron breaking the vow and conducting no negotiations over spanning Scotland's powers after the 2014 independence referendum, felt betrayed because they were told the only way they would be guaranteed EU membership was by remaining in the United Kingdom. Northern Irish voters were concerned that leaving the European Union would tear apart the Good Friday Agreement, as the EU customs protocol allowed for a unified customs system for both the United Kingdom and Ireland, avoiding the hard border that fueled tensions during the Troubles. Welsh nationalists also vehemently opposed this move. However, David Cameron couldn't hold it off any longer. In 2015, Karen pursued another referendum on the European Union and the stage was set. The four nations of the United Kingdom were diverging and they were only growing further apart.
1: Then in June 2016, it all came to a head.
0: Well, at 20 minutes to five, we can
1: now say the decision taken in 1975 by this country to join the common market has been reversed by this referendum Uh, to
0: leave the EU. We are
1: absolutely clear now that... Chapter 4, Disillusion. The result was a firestorm. The UK narrowly voted to leave the EU, but the results of the election revealed the slow divisions that had begun to emerge across the four countries since the end of the British Empire. The country-by-country breakdown was revealing. Save London, England and Wales voted to leave, while Scotland and Northern Ireland overwhelmingly voted to remain. Scotland was the most vehemently pro-EU, with almost two-thirds of voters electing to remain in the bloc. The world was stunned. Immediately, David Cameron resigned and was replaced by Theresa May. Immediately attempting to make good on the promise to leave the European Union, May faced a challenging task. Make a deal with the EU before a self-imposed deadline.
0: May was caught in the middle between three groups. Hard Brexiteers, steeped in English nationalism, wanted no deal despite the grave economic consequences of such a move. Soft Brexiteers, who wanted to keep many benefits of membership without the membership itself. And the Remainers, who desired a second Brexit referendum or ignoring the first one completely. It proved to be near impossible. Talks with the European Union that sought to make an example of the United Kingdom were fraught. And May's agreements were rejected by the House of Commons three times, as both Remainers and hard Brexiteers thwarted each of her attempts. Perhaps the biggest sticking point was the Irish border. The Northern Ireland Protocol helps prevent checks along the land border between Northern Ireland and the UK and the Republic of Ireland and the EU. During Brexit negotiations, all sides agreed that protecting the 1998 Northern Ireland Peace Deal, the Good Friday Agreement, was an absolute priority. Part of that meant keeping the land border open and avoiding new infrastructure such as cameras and border posts. This was easy to do when both Ireland and Northern Ireland were part of the EU because they automatically share the same EU rules on trade and no checks were needed on goods traveling between both countries. However, a new arrangement was needed after Brexit. Under the protocol, it was agreed that Northern Ireland would continue to follow EU rules on product standards, As part of the single market, to prevent checks along the border. Checks would instead take place on goods entering Northern Ireland from England, Scotland, or Wales. Inspections take place at Northern Ireland ports, and customs documents have to be filled in. However, this prompted criticism from unionists that a new border has effectively been created in the Irish Sea. The UK government was stuck between a rock and a hard place. There couldn't be a hard border between Ireland and Northern Ireland or a hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. But Euroskeptic concerns about customs-free travel across open borders fueled Brexit in the first place. The Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party did not see eye to eye with May's government, and feuds were plentiful.
1: And Look, I'm very clear. I uh, want Stormont to succeed. Uh, I want Devolution to succeed. But there has to be a recognition in London, Dublin, and Brussels, that damage has been done by this protocol, and therefore we have to deal with it. Belfast agreement is about...
0: Theresa May was unable to cross the finish line, and she resigned in 2019.
1: Enter Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London. A provocateur, Johnson steamrolled the opposition and pushed ahead with his own Brexit agreement with the EU, maintaining the very protocol that kept Northern Ireland's border opened with Ireland. Once again, Northern Ireland unionism felt betrayed, and they feared an agreement that would put Northern Ireland in closer economic union than the rest of the UK. Immediately, anger bubbled to the surface, with pro-British loyalist factions engaging in violence and skirmishes with the police, resulting in the largest spat of violence in almost 20 years.
0: The UK government did not follow through on a mitigation strategy to address the arrangement. As a consequence, Arlene Foster, Northern Ireland's First Minister at the time, resigned, and the Democratic Unionist Party yielded control to Sinn Fein, Northern Ireland's major nationalist party, amidst the resulting political turmoil, giving the Northern Ireland Assembly the first nationalist, pro independence majority in its history. Whether or not this threatens to ignite a new era of sectarian violence, has yet to be determined.
1: After a contentious leadership battle, Johnson seemed to take notice of the widening chasms forming across the kingdom, creating a ministry for the Union and framing himself as the premier for all Britons. However, the seemingly cosmetic changes often conflicted with his policies. Johnson attempted on multiple occasions to use executive power and weaken the devolved governments of Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales he sought to erode their authority in order to execute various provisions of his 2020 Brexit agreement without interference. This worked out poorly for Prime Minister Johnson. The devolved legislatures banded together and spoke out, directing a lot of attention. As a result, on top of the personal unpopularity he gathered before entering the premiership, Johnson became even more unpopular, especially among people in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. The devolved legislatures were asserting their authority, and it was getting harder and harder for Westminster to goad them into compliance.
0: Even though the Conservative Party's winning philosophy broke down beyond England's borders, Boris Johnson doubled down on Conservative Unionist philosophy, often mocking Scottish members of Parliament and refusing to meet with devolved governments in good faith. His disconnect became political fodder for the independence movements of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland further building on the sectional divisions within the United Kingdom. The culmination of all of this went on full display during the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, and there were few events that so palpably illustrated the divide than the dueling press conferences of both Boris Johnson and Nicola Sturgeon. The difference was stark. Although they may have promoted similar policies, Ms. Sturgeon's press conferences became extremely popular in Scotland, with viewership significantly higher for her conferences over Mr. Johnson's. They were popular enough that viewers in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland would tune in as well. Her personal popularity soared, and her supporters affectionately named her the Mother of Scotland.
1: All the while, Scotland's political divergences with Westminster accelerated. Directly contradicting the UK government, the Scottish Parliament hired thousands more healthcare workers, nationalized Scotland's passenger rail system, banned fracking and introduced sweeping climate change legislation that made Scotland one of the first countries to be powered entirely by renewable energy. This put the SNP in a position to serve as the foil to the impulsive tendencies of Boris Johnson. This divergence made Scottish nationalism resilient. Overcoming small electoral setbacks, the SNP won almost every Scottish seat in the House of Commons in 2015 and nearly captured the majority for the second time in the Scottish Parliament in 2021, giving the SNP a mandate to call a second Scottish independence referendum.
0: Chapter 5 an uncertain future. The political atmosphere in the United Kingdom is febrile. The results of the 2019 and 2021 general elections suggest an impending confrontation between the forces of English and Scottish nationalization, as a populist conservative party under Boris Johnson defeated Labour in England, and the Scottish National Party, led by Nicola Sturgeon, carried all before it in Scotland. The Conservatives have found a winning political formula under Boris Johnson giving it immense electoral success, but in England only. Their political fortunes largely break down once borders are crossed. The s have a majority in Edinburgh, and Labour has a firm hold on Wales. The sectionalism is so stark, some observers have argued that Boris Johnson's government has a mandate from England and England only.
1: Post-Brexit, support for Scottish independence has been growing. Young people under 40 supported by a landslide. Gen Z voters, those under 25, have all grown up under the perceived success of de-evolution, complete with the strengthening sense of their national identities and connection with its language. Since summer 2020, more than 30 polls have suggested a clear majority would vote for Scottish independence, overturning the result of the 2014 vote. At 1.58% favored independence. Never has that figure been plotted that high. Not only that, the UK government under Boris Johnson's halting reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic has made the situation much worse. Many UK watchers note that Nicola Sturgeon's administration in Edinburgh is trusted and respected by the Scottish people in a way that the Westminster government simply is not.
0: The idea of independence has captured much of Scotland's civil society and the arts. Brexit and COVID-19 have given the independence campaign another couple of shoves. Most of all, the unionist camp is divided, badly led, and right now seems to have lost heart in its own cause. There are legitimate cases against independence. Defense, customs, and monetary policy have not been fully addressed by those favoring independence. However, the gloom of those fighting for the continued existence of the United Kingdom seems unlighted by any narrative. Any emotional reason as to why Scotland should stay in the Union, many pro-British advocates can muster up only vague warnings. Without the obligations of maintaining a sprawling empire or global hegemony, what it means to be British has rung increasingly hollow, especially to those in the UK's outer countries. Euroskeptic ultra-conservatives long desired to recover something lost after the hangover of Hong Kong on that fateful day in 1997 a feeling of greatness and global relevance, all flying under the Union Jack. Empire and international relevance enabled many of the United Kingdom's divisions and internal contradictions to remain ignored. But now, with its global presence diminished and the imperial foundations of Britain, a distant past, the very notion of Britishness risks complete irrelevance. Hard Brexiteers and populists were those driving much of the UK's antagonism to Europe. With one vote, they campaigned. Britain could be free. These Brexiteers promised the United Kingdom would finally be able to reassert its sovereignty, trade with the world, and become a supposedly independent nation once more. Many of them even suggested that the UK would even recover some of the global influence it has long lost. In reality, of course, it never turned out that way. What the post Brexit atmosphere may actually have done is critically weaken the UK's governance structures. Scotland and Northern Ireland, of course, voted to remain, and by no small margin. And the resultant crisis of confidence set off by a concerted Scottish push towards independence is weakening Westminster's authority everywhere.
1: It is possible that the very driver behind the United Kingdom's post-imperial struggle is the Westminster system itself, constructed for the empire and left largely unchallenged by war, Or political upheaval, it is the only system in Europe that hasn't required a fundamental change. This has given it in many ways a lot of idiosyncrasies. It lacks a formal constitution. It is a Unitarian state, but devolution has federalized it unevenly. The House of Lords has the distinction of being the only country besides Iran in which religious leaders have the automatic right to sit in the legislature. Not only that, the House of Lords gives the UK the unsavory distinction of having one of the largest unelected legislative bodies second only to the National People's Congress in China. The Conservative Party, by catering to English voters alone, has governed for nearly a dozen years, despite failing to win a majority of the votes in the last election. Many of the UK feel left out and voiceless in the system of governance. Many feel like now is the time for change.
0: The post-imperial nature of the 21st century United Kingdom has yielded immense turmoil over the past 25 years, and the divides are accelerating. For a political entity that has survived over 300 years of war, crisis, and upheaval, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland may very well be running on borrowed time. It is possible that the current turmoil is nothing more than temporary turbulence with the stronger United Kingdom just around the corner. However, that has never looked more uncertain it is becoming increasingly likely that the international community might see the very breakup of the United Kingdom itself. The odds of such an event should not be ignored. Will the world be prepared for a major divorce?
1: This episode is part of our new narrative series, Up to Speed, where we tell the stories of some of the most interesting developments in international affairs. If you enjoyed this narrative styles, please let us know. Shoot us an email at hopkinspofa, P-O-F-A, at gmail.com, or send us a message on our Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, at HopkinsPofa, P-O-F-A. Research, script writing, voiceovers, and audio editing for this episode were done by students from the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, This episode is brought to you by myself, Amanda, Cameron, and Zach. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.